Welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute Podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance at Keras Life Sciences. The Precision Oncology Alliance is this large collaborative research network across many academic institutions in the U.S. and abroad, and as well as healthcare systems. Our goal is to build the research enterprise that hopefully improves the outcomes of patients with cancer. Thank you for tuning into the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Today, I host a wonderful guest, David Dubin, who is currently an employee at Keras and works alongside us uh, at Keras Life Sciences. However, we are going to talk about his personal journey because David did develop colorectal cancer at a very young age, under the age of 30, and how this really transformed his life and led him to finally discover that he has a syndrome called Lynch syndrome, which you will hear all about. And how did he actually also take that to build a non-for-profit organization to help patients similar to him? Well, I'm very happy that you are tuning in. This is really a true pleasure to have David Dubin on the Karis Molecular Minute podcast. You can overlook, by the way, his soccer affiliations and football affiliations because he's always going to make fun of me being a supporter of Manchester United. Okay, without further ado, David Dubin on the Karis Molecular Minute podcast. Well, it's really my pleasure to host David Dubin on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast uh, today. And David and I are colleagues and co-workers at Keras Life Sciences, but he has a, an interesting life story and a journey on a personal level, on a professional level, and I really felt it would be of interest to our amazing listeners and uh, this is audio, so you don't see that. I am going to ask David about uh, why he always wears a hat. He doesn't know I was going to ask him that, but I will. And that's what happens when you're a host. When you're a host, you just basically get to do whatever you want. David, welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Much appreciated. I know you're a podcaster as well, and you host your own thing. So I feel like we're two professional podcasters or amateur podcasters talking to each other. But let's start by telling listeners uh, who you are, what you do, and tell us a little bit more about uh, David Dubin, the person and the professional. Well, thank you, Chadi. It is a pleasure to be here. Uh, and I did wear the hat just in case uh, anyone, there was video and, and I know how you like it. So I did it for you. So, so my history, uh, I mean, it goes back a long way, but I'll, I'll start with uh, my history as uh, a, a cancer survivor. Um, my first uh, bout with, uh, with colon cancer was back in 1997 when I was uh, the ripe old age of 29. Uh, there was a very strong history of uh, cancer in my family, specifically colon cancer, going from my grandfather and my father and then me. Uh, but it just uh, it just was getting younger. And, um, you know, back in the 90s, we really were not talking about it. So uh, not talking about genetics, forgive me. Uh, it just uh, was a family history. It actually happened for my brother in, in 2000 when he was in 30, when he was 37. But it really uh, changed in terms of the story in 2007 when I developed colon cancer a second time. 
and by now we were all talking about genetics uh, and uh, I was tested and obviously I had my surgery and whatnot, but uh, it was determined that something called Lynch syndrome ran in my family. I have a mutation in my MLH1 gene. And uh, because of that, we have a predisposition to uh, a number of different cancers, uh, specifically colon cancer uh, as one of them. And uh, this was something that could potentially be handed down to the next generation in which uh, I had three sons by then. So that's really the, when the conversation changed. And uh, we created our foundation. Uh, we called it Alive and Kicking. Uh, as, uh, as you know, I am a uh, soccer player and coach and fan. And uh, I was still playing at the time. And we felt like it was a pretty good name for an organization, uh, given uh, how many surgeries I was having and still playing the game that I love. And that's where we uh, kind of took off from there. But, you know, uh, personally, I, uh, I've been married to my uh, college sweetheart. We've been together since we were 18. So you can do the math on that. We have three sons and we're, uh, you know, like everyone else, we were born in Brooklyn, but now we live in North Jersey and uh, we kind of enjoy the New York metropolitan area lifestyle. And our sons are grown and uh, they're pretty good right now. Now, me and you do not see eye to eye with soccer, though. Well, actually, not, not so much. Uh, we see eye to eye in the love of the game. Yes, we do love you the game. Have, yes, you have a, an affinity for Manchester United, which I completely respect. Uh, I, who, again, born in the States, love the game. And I do like the U.S. teams. I like the, I like the, uh, the, the Red Bulls and, you know, and NYCFC around here. I actually have my NYCFC jersey uh, on hand. Uh, but on an international basis, I like the Spanish teams. I, I like the Barcelona Real Madrid teams. And uh, so, by the time me and you are talking, David, you know Messi is leaving Barcelona. Is going to Paris. He's going to become a Parisian. What do you think? I, I hope it doesn't become a, a, a lopsided season for PSG in in, in the French leagues. Um, I'm good friends with uh, Jimmy Conrad, who played for the played for the U.S. team, and he does a lot of. Um, you know, he does a lot of announcing and podcasting as well uh, for soccer. And his con he made a comment that wouldn't it be great if PSG played in the Premier League uh, just for one season to see what it'd be like. So let's let's go back a little bit to your to your story. I mean, 1997, right? 1997, um, 29 years old. The last thing on the mind of a 29 year old is that you are going to get cancer. Right. Do you mind telling us how you found out about the cancer back then, David? Well, I actually found out about the cancer. Uh, unfortunately, the way most find out about cancer is you develop symptoms. Um, and, uh, you know, it turned out, uh, you know, I had stage 3B uh, colon cancer. So I was having symptoms of uh, bleeding in the stool, cramping. I was not lethargic, but at the same time, I was 29 years old. I was still playing soccer, uh, still running the business. And quite frankly, I was misdiagnosed, just like most young adults who develop uh, colon cancer and other cancers. And it, it was chalked up to stress. Uh, I had just uh, recently gotten married. Not that that's stressful. We had our first son, first house, sold the first business. So it was chalked up to a, a stressful time in my life. Uh, and if it wasn't for you know me going back after six months and saying, uh, there's something wrong here, I'm not sure how long it would have lasted. So then you had surgery. And then you had chemotherapy at the time? Yeah, that's actually a very interesting, uh, you know, sidebar of all this. You know, back in 1997, without the genetic component and really not talking about microsatellite instability and all these types of 
topics that we're talking about now, you know, uh, platinum-based 5-FU was a standard treatment for colon cancer. And uh, I did have that as chemotherapy. And, you know, nowadays, as, as you know, and I know, it's it's been shown to do, literally do nothing for anyone with uh, microsatellite instability and, and, and Lynch syndrome. It happens. I can't, you can't turn back time. And obviously I can't. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, it bothers me what, if it's, if I see it nowadays. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. So, so then you did well for 10 years and then mm-hmm. it came back or you developed a different cancer. So I had a, a obviously a, a partial colectomy, uh, I guess it's a hemicolectomy. Um, and I was going for annual colonoscopies and this is really uh, how you know, crazy it was, is that uh, I actually had no symptoms whatsoever. I found out about it because I went to donate blood, you know, on purpose. And, um, and my iron count had dropped like a stone. Um, and they were going to give me a transfusion. They're like, uh, I think there's something wrong. So I, you know, I, I called my GI doctor. And um, he's like, well, come on in, we'll, we'll check you out. And, and sure enough, that's how we found out about it. Uh, really had no symptoms whatsoever. Three kids, Maintain. So that, that, then they took the entire colon at the time when it came back. They took it all, or no, they did not take it all. I still have uh, about a foot and a half left. I have a conversation with my oncologist on a regular basis. Uh, she is my coach, uh, and uh, we talk about the idea of potentially having the rest removed. You know, it, it, you know, prophylactically. But I've also seen what it's like to have an ostomy and have that type of lifestyle, and it's not easy. So uh, I've made the decision, well, when I say I, we, my family, you know, I've made the decision to not have everything removed and just be very cognizant and, and very proactive in my screening. Did you need to get chemotherapy the second time around after the additional surgery? I did not. You did not. So, uh, and then before we go in, into what you did after that, What's your family history? Um, like in, when you were 29 and you said there was a lot of family history, can, can you give us a, just a breadth of what we're talking about? Sure. So my, uh, you know, I remember this very vividly back in high school when my grandfather had his colon cancer. You know, he was in his 60s. Uh, he actually did have an ostomy. He wound up with an ostomy at that time. Um, he lived well into his 80s. I, I think he was 88 when he passed away and he essentially passed away. You know, he had, he had Alzheimer's. So, you know, theoretically, that's kind of the way you're supposed to pass away. You're not supposed to pass away from colon cancer in your 40s or something. My father, a different story, he developed colon cancer in his 40s, and he waited a very long time to get tested. Uh, And, and, you know, you and I know each other, you you see me, you know, I'm six feet tall, I'm about, you know, about 190 pounds. My father is roughly the same size. Um, By the time he finally went to see a physician, uh, he was probably 135, 140 pounds soaking wet. He was ashen. Um, he, he, how do I say it? He looked like death walking. Who knows how long he had the, the colon cancer growing in him. And I think it was 44 by the time he finally went to see a physician. And uh, ultimately, he had surgery. I think he had chemotherapy. Uh, as, and then ultimately, he developed colon cancer another time later on in life. Uh, he had a bladder tumor. Uh, but as I like to say, he's still alive and kicking at 89, uh, living in Florida. Oh, good for him. I was, uh, I was going to ask you, that's, that's excellent. You, you guys have hopefully good other genes, not the, 
So, well, so it, that was interesting that you say that because my, my brother is the same way. He had his colon cancer at 37. He's now 59. Excellent. Excellent. He probably speaks for early detection. But um, in 2007, when you developed the disease, you were 10 years later. So lots of progress has happened. When you talk to your oncologist, is that the time when she or he said, let's test you for the Lynch syndrome? I was tested for the Lynch syndrome after the second colon cancer diagnosis. So yes, it wasn't until after the Lynch syndrome diagnosis itself. That's when I started seeing an oncologist. Got it. So what, uh, so tell, tell listeners, and most of our listeners probably know that, but just, you know, um, since you lived and, and, and read this, what did they do to test you for the Lynch syndrome? Um, take us through what happened, and then how were the results communicated to you as a patient? Um, mm-hmm. And how did you receive these results, especially now that you had children? And I'm mm-hmm. sure you were thinking about the impact of that on your children. Uh, we were, so... When, uh, so, you know, I get, I get the diagnosed with the, se- with the colon cancer the second time, obviously the next step is being prepped for surgery, but at the same time is drawing blood, uh, to do the genetic testing. Uh, it's very straightforward. Um, so the genetic test is done and the results are not come back until after the surgery. So I have the surgery right away. It's taken care of right away. Um, the blood test is done. And so, uh, you know, a week or two, I forget, uh, right after the surgery is over, uh, I have a, a sit down conversation with the genetic counselor. Uh, the genetic counselor was at Mount Sinai uh, and she went over the results w- with me and my wife. And we talked about what it means. Uh, what does Lynch syndrome mean? Uh, because this is all new, you know, this is new to us. And it's explained to us that it's a predisposition. Not only do, does it predispos- predispose you to colon cancer, but there are other types of cancers that could potentially uh, rear its ugly head with Lynch syndrome. And of course, we go, we go through the, the, the concept of autosomal dominant, because again, that was new to me at the time. And it's explained that now that you have three sons, each one of them is at a 50, a 50% chance of inheriting my mutation. Um, it's not a guarantee. It's not a guarantee that they'll inherit it. And even if they do inherit, it's not a guarantee that they will in fact get cancer. Um, but it's also explained that this is typically an, 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 an adult onset cancer mutation, uh, and that they don't need to be tested right away. Uh, they can wait until they turn 18, at which point they're considered adults and they can make their own decisions. And, you know, if you know they won't, they shouldn't have any symptoms. They shouldn't have any cancer before they turn eighteen. It's best to make it their decision, and we have plenty of time to work with. But at the same time, it was recommended that I start seeing a high risk oncologist, which I did, and she was the one who uh, high risk oncologist at NYU who uh, developed the plan. Not only should you be getting an annual colonoscopy and an upper endoscopy, but also, uh, you know, get a baseline CTs, chest, abdomen, and pelvis. Uh, start getting a cystoscopy, throw in every once in a while, uh, even a mammogram. Um, although it's, you know, it's kind of questionable whether uh, Lynch mutations cause breast cancer. Um, it's there. It's, it's to be safe. And, uh, and occasionally also looking at the pancreas using a, a, having a, I believe an MRCP. So that's, that's how it worked out. And ultimately um, because of the additional scans I started having and I discovered a kidney tumor, um, a very small renal carcinoma on my right kidney. And, you know, two, two years after my colon cancer surgery, I had uh, kidney surgery and 
took out 10% of my right kidney and I go on my merry way. Was the kidney tumor attributed to Lynch syndrome? Is Lynch syndrome uh, known to cause kidney tumors? It can. It can. So, so all three are considered primaries. Right. So when you developed, though, and when you found out you have the Lynch syndrome, aside from your children who were not 18 at the time, right. you had other family members. Did they all get tested? I mean, I don't know how many brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, like, I mean, because it's autosomal dominant, right? Which uh, means it could penetrate easier through generations. So did they all get tested? You shared the results with them? Uh, I did, but actually um, the one of the, I guess the good thing out of all this is that my aunt, my, my sister, uh, my aunt on my father's side uh, was negative. So all of her children obviously did not have to get tested for it um, because if she's negative for it, uh, then they can't inherit it. Inherit it. Uh, my brother does in fact have the Lynch mutation. Uh, we, were, we were pretty certain about that anyway. Um, and he has a daughter um, and she, she is roughly the same age as uh, my 21 year old. So at the time she was little as well. When they test, they're really checking the microsatellite instability first, or they're checking the particular genes and they're doing germline testing. Do you want to tell listeners uh, a little bit more on at least, you know, germline versus somatic versus this, because, because that differentiates, I believe, Lynch from others? It does. So uh, microsatellite instability is the, the hallmark for Lynch mutations. If you go back in time, back, you know, back in uh, 97 and 2007, when I had my surgery, uh, were they testing for MSI across the board? Probably not. Um, it had been discovered, but it really was not being done. Fast forward to today. So if somebody were to come in with a colon cancer, a pancreatic cancer, uh, some sort of urological uh, reproductive cancers, because obviously this test, this, this affects females as well as males, typically that cancer would be tested somatically, right? You would be checking for the, the types of mutations in the tumor itself first. And, and you know, an important one be, would be to check for microsatellite instability. But then, of course, germline testing, which would be testing, uh, you know, the, the DNA, the blood, um, would, all, would, would and should be done uh, in parallel uh, to determine whether someone has a Lynch mutation or BRCA or something similar. So obviously, I mean, you wanted to do something and you created this, um, is it a non-for-profit uh, foundation, Alive and Kicking, that you mentioned, as well as uh, you do a, a podcast show. Tell us about uh, Alive and Kicking. Um, how did you create it? What's its mission? What you're trying to accomplish? And, and how long has it been in existence? Oh, thank you. So in 2012, um, after my, my third cancer, my wife and I really did not see anyone in the advocacy space for Lynch syndrome specifically. We had seen colon cancer, we had seen other types of cancers, um, but we really did not see anyone talking about Lynch syndrome. And quite frankly, we weren't even aware of it. So that's why we decided to create the foundation. So it is a 501c3 started in 2012. And uh, we've been growing ever since. Uh, a couple of years ago, we uh, launched a, uh, a registry uh, a patient-centric registry so that patients can upload their data. Uh, as you know, that in, in the healthcare space, there are a lot of silos. So you may have a registry at a certain institution and a registry at another institution, but they don't typically talk to each other. So we created this along with the Genetic Alliance so that patients can upload their own data. They can share their information with other patients out there. They're all consented so that 
if they're interested in participating in, in clinical trials or research, that uh, researchers can reach out to them and, and have conversations with them about uh, what's important to them as patients, not just being you know a number or, or a name on a, on, a, on a board. I launched the podcast uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, in all honesty, because we were all stuck at home, uh, but also um, the voice is the good gene that I have. Like you, we have the ability to I have a good have, voice. No, no, your voice is way better than mine. That's for sure. I, I'm going to say I disagree. I, I do like my voice, uh, but I will say you do have a voice and you do have a very good accent. So that's really <laughs> uh, it, it works. You know, you have the ability to have a conversation just like I have the ability to conversation. And what I've learned over the years and, and many of us learned is that Lynch syndrome is still considered this rare mutation. And it's not. I mean, it's crazy that. Well, I was going to ask you, actually, David, you run just registry of patients. Like how many patients right now do you have in the registry? Not enough. We have like 300 and I think maybe 325 patients. There are supposedly statistically, there are a million Americans running around the U.S. with a Lynch mutation, a million and 95 percent don't know about it. That's crazy. So is it, I mean, what have you done to make it possible that obviously folks are not aware of Alive and Kicking? I mean, and, and obviously, you know, you need a lot of not only financial support, but you need a lot of bandwidth to be able to spread the word. You know, whatever you can share with us, have you been successful getting funding, uh, getting philanthropy, uh, spreading the word? I got to tell you, it's tough. It, you know, it's, we keep saying that, so we, we do what we can with what we have. That's the best way to explain it. And, 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 and again, going back to my wife, and we, we've run Alive and Kickin' as if it was a business because it, in, in all honesty, it is a business. We don't overextend ourselves. Um, we do events where uh, there's a very good return with minimal investment. Um, we try and do what we can with what we have. We've gotten some money from, uh, from industry, you know, from the, the pharmaceutical industry, some from, from diagnostics, um, but not a ton. And we have not found that one name, that one voice besides mine, that, um, that really will bring in the, the money you would take to, or the money or the bandwidth that it would take to generate the national, if not international notoriety to make people talk about this. Um, how do I say this? we've all heard of Angelina Jolie. What she has done for BRCA is really what we need for Lynch syndrome. Take someone who can take their platform and transform it into a message. And when, uh, when, you know, when that time comes, we'll be in a good position until that time comes. We do it. We do what we can with what we've got. No, absolutely. And, and, and I hope a lot of people are able to, I mean, you have a website, I don't know, com, I guess, or something. .org, but yes org and maybe people folks can check it out and 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 hopefully they can donate and and, and be part of the uh, ongoing movement what's your sense about uh, now that you've been a patient and advocate and all of that in the last few minutes we have I'm curious about your thoughts from the patient side and the advocate side because not all advocates are necessarily patients but you know you have both What's your sense about germline testing for colorectal cancer? Is it today that everybody needs to undergo germline testing? Are there specific criteria for people who develop colon cancer that should undergo germline testing or anybody with colorectal cancer, regardless of age, ethnicity, race, whatever it is, germline testing for all? Everybody. Everyone, 100%. 
so there's NCCN, which make their guidelines, and then there's Dave Dubin. But I will say that they're starting to meet. There is a pretty strong movement that anyone with a, a reproductive cancer or a, uh, a gastrointestinal cancer uh, should have germline testing. Um, and I strongly agree with that. Well, David, you've been very generous with your time. Uh, first of all, congratulations on being healthy. Congratulations on transforming to becoming an advocate uh, for a mission that you obviously believe in, having experienced it yourself. Final thoughts to listeners before I let you go. I'm a big fan of, of saying to listeners, be your own advocate. And just talking about, you know, from the advocacy space is really get to know your own body and also get to know your family history, uh, because both of those things will tell a lot, uh, especially men. Uh, men, don't get, men don't get screened on, on a regular basis, and they really need to do so. So talk about it. Talk about health history. Talk about your family history. Talk about cancer. Uh, it's not taboo. And quite frankly, it could save your life. That's it. I'm calling my primary care doctor of this podcast. David Dubin, <laughs> thank you so much for visiting on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Much appreciated. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I appreciate your support and I appreciate you being with us on this podcast. Please let me know about the podcast, any suggestions and any ideas. You can direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or send me an email to cnabhan at karisls.com. Thank you for your support. Thank you for being on the Karis Molecular Minute podcast. Do not forget to subscribe to the podcast, rate the podcast, and write a brief review on the podcast. Refer your friends and colleagues. For that, I'm forever grateful. Until next time, thank you. Thank you.